millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Gary Bain and I'm once more with Peter Hart. Hello. And today, Pete, we're going to continue our new, relatively new, series of podcasts featuring the Fife and Forfa Yeomanry. As yes, we like to, to pronounce say. it properly, don't we? Forfa. Forfa. I wonder what he thinks of Fife de Forfa. <laughs> uh, and today, uh, we're going to deal with um, Operation Epsom. Yes, uh, the, the fourth in our series. It's uh, it's it's going to be a good series. It's really, really looking forward to it. Where are we? Well, the uh, Fife and Forfa you only thought, <laughs> now you see I'm pronouncing that right, I can't pronounce anything else right, had arrived in Normandy, uh, and uh, where are we? Basically, they'd been waiting, waiting, waiting to, for the 11th Armoured Division, their parent body, to be thrust into action. Now, Montgomery, uh, as we discussed last time, he planned a major series of offensives that would be carried out by his second army. Uh, that's commanded by, uh, you've heard of him, I think, General Miles Dempsey. Nice, nice name, nice chap. Never heard of him. Uh, with the purpose of drawing in the newly arriving German armoured divisions. Uh, he was trying to maintain a tactical initiative, I think. Uh, would you say? Uh, did you, yeah, what he's trying to do is he's trying to force the Germans to respond rather than give them any sort of chance to initiate their own plans for a July-coordinated July offensive. So what is his, his plan? Uh, well, it, uh, elements of three British corps would take part, but the main role is uh, assigned uh, uh, to General Richard O'Connor's uh, 8th Corps, which included the, that's, uh, includes the 11th Armoured Division, and hence the Second Fife and Forfa Yeomanry. I'm going to give up and just call them what I like in the future. Um, so, what is the plan for Operation Epsom? Could you sum it uh, up? Uh, it's, it looks incredibly complicated on the written page. Well, it is. Uh, that in essence, they would burst through the German line between the city of Caen and the village of Tilly, which was some ten miles to the west. The 15th Scottish Division Aye. was to push past Show. Uh, cross the Odon River and establish a really, really strong bridgehead. The 11th Armoured Division, augmented by the 4th Armoured Brigade, would then take up the charge, pushing further to cross the Orne River. I just get terribly confused between Odon and the Orne, but never mind. <laughs> I'm saying nothing. They would then pass the high ground of Hill 112, and we've been to Hill 112, have, yeah. I seem to recall, and sever the Khan Filet Road. That's virtually surrounding Khan. 
Meanwhile, on their left, the 51st Highland Division... I Sorry, I'll sleep there. <laughs> ...of uh, one corps would move east of Calm in a pincer movement to overrun the Carpiquet airfield. Now, the 15th Div, that's the Scottish uh, Division, uh, 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 they were to... Uh, their attacks are scheduled to commence at 0730 on 26th of June, 1944. Uh, the creeping barrage would uh, start just a minute earlier, and that would uh, consist of some 640 guns, supported by a battleship, uh, hopefully the war spot, I'm not sure at that time, and two cruisers. They'd advance on a two-brigade front, uh, with the 44th Lowland Brigade on the left and the 46th Highland Brigade on the right. They were to be supported initially, at least, by the Churchill tanks of the 31st Tank Brigade. Now, uh, so so they were together. They to advance past the village of Sure. I don't know how you pronounce that, but I'm going for Sure. We have different opinions and French pronunciations, and I've noticed that I'm always wrong. Uh, to the hundred foot contour ridge, which ran just to the southeast of the the the, the village. Now, that's not high, is it, uh, Gary? Uh, no, why is no. it important? It, well, because it offers a good viewpoint. Uh, and artillery observation over the next phase of the advance to be carried out by the 227th Highland Brigade, pushing forward to the line of the Odon River. That's the first of the two rivers, yeah. Now, only then, in the original plans, was the 11th Armoured Division to move forward. Uh, that's an ambitious programme, isn't it? And, and there's a bit of a, a spanner in the works before they even start, isn't it? Yeah, it's made more difficult because of the failure of the earlier 49th West Riding Division attack on Rouray. Hang on, are they Scottish? No, no, they're from Yorkshire. Which left their right flank badly exposed. There's other problems though, aren't there? Yeah, um, heavy rainfall and low cloud also lost them much of the support promised from the RAF. Now, it's interesting the terrain they're moving through. It's very different from the desert, which is where tanks have previously, British tanks have mainly been off. You mean northern France is different to the desert? Yes. <laughs> it's got, it's intensively farmed countryside. With lots of small villages, farms dotted around, lots of sunken lanes, uh, fields full of standing corn, because of course it's, it's summer. Uh, and usually the, the fields are delineated by a very, sorry, uh, edged, Gary. Uh, Thank or, you. Or, <laughs> with thick, tall hedges, often with a, a bloody great big ditch at the foot, which is all perfect for defence in some ways. Uh, it, it, it's perfect and, 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 uh, yeah, it, determined defenders could hold ground very well indeed and you don't get many more uh, determined as the opposing 12th ss hitler youth panzer division Ooh, they don't sound nice now when the attack started at 0730 it was soon apparent that the 15th division was making slow progress and to speed things along, Lieutenant General Richard O'Connor decided to deploy the 11th Armoured Division. And in the afternoon, the 29th Armoured Brigade was ordered forward. So the 2nd 5 forefire, they'd follow up the advance of 227th uh, Brigade uh, from Shur. Uh, they were to move on to, the, we'll put a map up, <laughs> probably, <laughs> the villages of Tourville and Granville sur Odin. I bet that's on the Odin. Uh, and uh, before assisting the 31st Tank Brigade in, in getting uh, uh, the, the Odin bridges at Tumerville and Gavros. Now, um, so this is quite a big thing for the men of the 2nd, 5th and 4th Yomri. Why, why is it so big for them? Well, because they're actually facing up to their first battle. Mm. Now, Alf Courtnage, he'd been training as a bricklayer before he was called up in 1942. 
Now, he was a wireless operator in a Sherman, but he remained philosophical over his immediate prospects. And this is what Trooper Alf Courtnage of HQ Squadron says. You know you're going to go into battle, and you know there's a certain number of people, it might be a large number, would get knocked out. It all comes down to the training and the discipline. You do things automatically. I don't think nerves or fear came into it. I think we had reached quite a good peak, and if you were told to do something, you did your best to carry out what orders you had. I never knew anybody who would say, oh, I'm not going to go in the Sherman. But one thing, when you got in, you didn't have to bother about the rain. I love that. That's a lovely finish of that quote. I like that. Now, B Squadron move off in front of, uh, as, as they go forward, B Squadron are in front, uh, moving up behind the advancing Scottish infantry. Uh, and this is a difficult business. Every hedge, Gary, every wall, every orchard, every sunken sausage. Every, every mountain. There's no mountains in Normandy. But yeah, and they could all conceal German troops. Uh, is German troops all it could conceal? No, because they can also conceal tanks or anti-tank guns. And and the ground in front of them, the very ground could have mines in it. And, and they'd already caused several losses to the, the 31st uh, Tank Brigade. Now, they got to Sure and C Squadron under Major Chris Nichols moved foot up to take the lead, while A Squadron, commanded by Major Joe Powell, manoeuvred in tandem just to the right. So basically B Squadron, they, they, they move forward, C come through, and A and uh, C on the uh, left and uh, A on the right. And where are uh, they pushing towards, Pete? They're, they're going towards the village of Hort du Bosc. Oh, well done. Now, by this time, it's pouring down and visibility was poor. And this is what Lieutenant Charlie Workman of uh, One Troop C Squadron has to say. The general tactic was you moved down a road if you could. And if the leading tank was fired on, you then moved off the road. You had to take... You had to keep taking account of what the ground was like on either side. We were going into Sure. Suddenly on the wireless, I heard someone come up and say his officer's tank had been hit. Lieutenant Pritchard is gone. He was killed. We saw the column of smoke. That was them opening up on, opening up on us. That's the Germans opening fire. Wow. Now, uh, they knew from their training what they've got to do. They've got to get off the road into the fields on either side. But it's not always that easy, is it? I mean, a workman alludes to it, and you're going to give us another point of view from Trooper Ron Cox, who was in C Squadron. Hemmed in between steep banks, we could see nothing. There was no room to turn round, and we couldn't reverse because of the tanks lined up nose to tail behind us. We heard the commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Scott, frequently coming on the air, urging the squadron leader to advance. But Major Nichols had had considerable experience and retorted that he would advance only when the gain justified the losses. That was a great morale a great morale booster and to Chris us. Nichols had been brought in specially because he had been a North African veteran he was experienced and that's why it was Montgomery who said you can't go in with three uh, new squadron leaders you've got to have some some experienced men and there you see an example of experience being valuable now just to the right of uh, C squadron as we said A squadron are coming under fire and with them is Lieutenant Steel Brownlee who's a bit of a hero of, the, of, of, of these podcasts and he's soon right up to his neck in it as usual uh, well, it's his first time, <laughs> as usual, in the future. Yeah, well done, Pete. Anyway, he's in. He's in. He's commanding four troop of A squadron. He says this. Don Hall took his troop round the edge of a wood. Myself following. Two of his tanks went up in flames, and he came roaring back, laying smoke. 
I took cover, but could not see anything to fire at because of the trees and smoke from the burning tanks. Two APs, that's armour-piercing shells, came over, just came over my head. So I too laid smoke and got out. As I was turning, two survivors from Don's tanks came back, came running back, burnt, and their clothes smouldering. Well, that's really descriptive, isn't it? Yeah. Now, his crew co-driver, Gordon Fiddler, was aghast at the brief glimpses he'd caught of the fighting. And this is what Trooper Gordon Fiddler of 4 Troop A Squadron says. The troop in front of us that had already lost three tanks. There was a tank 100 yards to our left. He was right on top of this German gun, probably about 50 yards from this anti-tank gun. It just erupted. It was engulfed in flames. I saw two coming out through the turret. The clothes were alight a flame. Both jumped down off the tank and lay on the grass, burning. We didn't go over to them. We were still moving forward. Then, the one on the right, that one brewed up. You can see this with your periscope. You're drawn to what's happening. We had two armour-piercing shots over the top of us. You can hear these. We don't really know what's going on. Still, Brownlee told us we were being fired at from a gun to our front. He told Jock McKinnon to reverse bloody quick. We didn't get hit. It's a fantastic picture inside yeah. that one Sherman. So there we've had the officer. Now we've had the, the co-driver. McKinnon is the driver. We haven't got anything from him. But what we have got is we've got the gunner. Now he was uh, Trooper John Buchanan. Uh, and he remembered that Steel Brownie sights three hold-down German tanks in a wood about 1,800 yards away. And he orders him to fire a high-explosive shell. And this is what John Buchanan says. To fire, there were two studs on the floor. And you thought it, it was the big gun you were firing. You, you, if it was a big gun you fired, you used the left-hand one. And if it was a machine gun, you used the right-hand one. <laughs> the only thing wrong was the buttons were too close together. If you've got big feet and you pressed the wrong button, you'd find you were expecting to see a shell and all of a sudden the machine gun would go. Or if you only wanted the machine gun, then a flipping big, flipping big shell would come screaming out. I love that idea of accidentally firing the wrong thing. Now, Still Brownlee may have recorded in his uh, memoir, which is now preserved at the Imperial War Museum, that there were no certain hits, but he's not averse to gilding the lily for his gunner. It's an unusually uh, sophisticated expression for you, Gary. And you're going to continue as Trooper John Buchanan. Still Brownie told me the shell had landed on the top of the turret. This, he means the German tank turret. My good gunnery, you see. I believed him. I could see the wood, but they were camouflaged in that wood. I saw the flash of the shell exploding. I thought I must have hit a tree and, and exploded. But he said, no, it hit the turret. It wouldn't have knocked the tank out. Not really. It depends on how it hit the turret. If it hits it on the top and it went down into the tank, it may have wounded the gunner and they would bail out. If you could hit the tracks, it would blow the track off, break the track. Then the tank is useless. Hitting a turret ring would probably jam the turret. Or if you could get an HE shell where the gun comes out of the turret, it would take big chunks of metal out, which would damage the gun. So that that's that, it, it's not just armour-piercing they use, it's it's high-explosive against uh, tanks. Uh, that was interesting. I hadn't realised that before I, I sort of did these interviews. Now, so where are we now? Uh, well, held back, the, we, we, we're talking here about Shermans, but there's another tank, isn't there? There's a, a, another tank that, that they've got, which we, we mentioned in the last episode. It's a, it's, a, it's, not, it's a special tank, isn't it? What is it? Well, it's a variation. It was the... Uh the Sherman Firefly, uh, one that was held back 
was commanded by Lance Corporal Stan Bush, with Terry Boyne acting as his wireless operator loader. Now, in action, each troop's firefly would prove a much prized asset, as the 17-pounder gun had the ability to actually knock out opposing Mark IV and Panther tanks. Now, Boyne's memoirs conjure up the, the, the chaos and confusion of that day, and this is what Trooper Terry Boyne of 3 Troop A Squadron has to say. It all started... Guns firing targets popping up. It all bubbled up and all exploded around you. All the chatter over the radio. In the Firefly, you were moving to targets that were often spotted by the others. Because their gun wasn't that effective on range, they would select the targets for you most of the time. As a loader, you were occupied just loading. On the Firefly, you had your own hatch. Because on the 75mm, the wireless operator could get under the gun to get out. But on the Firefly, being bigger, they'd cut an extra hatch overhead, alongside the commander's hatch. To see anything, you either looked through the periscope in front of you, or you put your head up. You can't see a lot, you've only got your periscope. Smoke, movement around you, a lot of dust. It was like mayhem. Orders coming over the air for this, that, everything else. A lot of firing, at what I wouldn't know, wouldn't see. It was only through the gunner's sight that you would actually see a target. Once you started firing, as you had the ammunition all around the turret ring, the commander's order would be, load with HE! You'd open the breech and just slam it in. You had to punch the shell in, because as the shell went in, it hit two little things that tripped the breech to shut. You didn't want your fingers in the way of that, it was quite a sizeable chunk. The breech snapped shut and that was it. The gunner would fire it with the trigger. As soon as it fired, the shell was ejected, it would come back, hit a deflecting plate behind it and then drop. You'd have one of each ready to pick up. If it was armour piercing, bang, that one went in and could go off in a matter of seconds. You could get a rhythm going. Then, when there was a lull when it wasn't firing, you busied yourself to fill in the empty spaces near to you. You wanted everything near to you to lay your hands on. Get rid of the empty shell cases that are rolling around at your feet. You might be firing the machine gun. Then you'd have to stick another belt in that when it got down low or ran out. The gunner would be firing that, but he relied on you to reload it. You had boxes of the ammunition at your feet ready. Just a matter of flipping up the top cover, laying it in and then cocking it. Now, the, the shells, they're, they're stacked all around the turret in the Sherman. And that's one of the reasons that the Sherman's... Became, we're so quick to brew up. Brew up's a lovely term for uh, for something that's really horrible. Now, how's the battle going, Gary? Well, few of the men involved could have given any kind of coherent statement. That's, that's right, I asked you. I you. When it comes to incoherent statements, I thought... Oh, sorry. Nor could their higher command. Oh. <laughs> about, you know, on a battlefield, if you're in a tank, you can't read the battlefield, can you? You can't, you, and, and that's especially the case if it's not going to plan, because you've got really no idea what's happening. But looking back, we, we're lucky enough to be able to see things using after action reports things. Overall, the infantry of the 15th Scottish Division had suffered terrible casualties. Not only them, the 31st Tank Brigade had also suffered heavily, while the 2nd, 5th and 4th, sorry, uh, they'd only just joined the battle late in the day, but they'd lost nine tanks. Uh, of these, C Squadron had lost seven, and A Squadron, how many, Gary? Well, the other two. That's shocking, really. It is quite a lot, isn't it? 
Now, during the fighting, there'd been an evident lack of smooth cooperation between the larger formations in the battle. And uh, by and large, the 15th Scottish Division, the 31st Tank Brigade and the 11th Armoured Division had fought their own battles. That is when they were not actively getting in each other's way. So uh, the, the, the cooperation, very poor uh, at that stage. This is something they improve on fairly rapidly but it's bad at this time now at the end of the day all they've got are the preliminary objectives uh, and and this left a, a sort of fragile salient stretching out through sure reaching towards that low rise you know that hundred foot uh, contour thing which is just beyond sure they've been stopped well short of the odon river well short of it but what's the situation on the flanks well, that was even worse, where on the left, the Germans still occupied the villages of uh, Marcelet and Carpiquet, while the heights of Rouray and the <laughs> village of La Haux de Bosque still bristled with German menace on the right. I wonder why you asked me to, to <laughs> say what was happening there. Ah, oh, dear. Now, that <laughs> night, in the pouring rain, the second Fife and Fourth for Yeomanry fell back a short distance to Lager for the night. Wow, it's pitch dark, and and to be honest, finding the rendezvous wasn't easy, and and still Browning, I know, I remember in his memoir, he claimed he only found it by the illumination of the burning tanks scattered about the battlefield. Uh, uh, Gary, what is a lager, do you remember? Yeah, well, it comes uh, originally uh, from the the Boer War, and uh, it's from the Afrikaans uh, lager, which just means a defended camp. And this is uh, Trooper, uh, as an explanation, Trooper Roy Valance, HQ Trooper at this time, A Squadron, he gives, gives an idea, he says this, Orders would be given over the air of the Lager location, which would be an open space, a field. A Squadron left, B Squadron right, C Squadron second left, RHQ in the middle. You would drive in. The second in command would have gone back and he would guide you. You park nose to tail with a gap between the lines big enough for the lorries to come along with petrol and ammunition. The first thing you did was get something to eat because the lorries wouldn't come up until it was well and truly dark. In case they got shelled, obviously, yep, I can see that. We'd got to wait for that, clean the guns and sort out the ammunition if you'd fired a lot. What was left, what was left, throw out the empties (laughs) and count how many you needed of each type. The driver would check his petrol, see how much of that he needed. If the petrol lorry came first, he would say, the, the lorry driver would say, how much do you want? He'd say, 10 cans, 20 cans, or whatever. He would get it off the lorry and hand it up to the driver on the tank. He'd got a funnel and he'd pour it in. He'd stack the empty cans around the side of the tank and the lorry would come around again and pick them up to take away. The water truck would come up. You'd fill up your water cans. The ammunition, ammunition lorries would come. I'd say, we want so many armour piercing, so many HE, high explosive. We'd uncase them. Each round was in an individual pressed cardboard case, or in some cases in a wooden container with perhaps four shells in, and you'd have to open them up and bomb up. Once you'd done all that you might put, well, once you'd done all that, you might put the bivvy up, but it probably wouldn't be worth it. You'd just sleep in the tank or just on the ground. Well, uncomplaining, of course, in the rain. Absolutely. Now, while the crews had plenty of work to do replenishing their tank, their officers were also busy supervising the overall activities and planning for the next day. Yeah, it's important to remember that, that, that just because they're not necessarily helping loading, they are, they are doing their own role, and that's what they should be doing. As the men worked... They'd talk to each other, looking out for their pals, and it soon became apparent that some of them were missing. The loss of close friends was a big challenge for any soldier, and it soon became apparent that not all of them could cope with the stress of combat. And once more, you're going to tell us what Trooper Roy Valance says. 
One wasn't aware of the full picture, but gradually it seeped through in the night. I was pretty frightened and horrified to think that these tanks that we'd thought were impregnable were just brewing up and had already got the nickname of Ronsons because invariably when they were hit, they brewed up in a flash. And that was a Ronsons advert, uh, light, always lights first time. I was young and it was exciting and one just thought, well, it's not going to happen to me. <laughs> the commander, now that was Corporal Jim Lister, became a nervous case. He was an excellent champ, but as soon as we got into action, he just went completely to pieces. He couldn't do his job, he just got down in the turret to hide. He wouldn't answer the A set. It was obvious he couldn't go on. He was obviously ill. It was very sad. He was sent to the doctor and he never came back. And I, it's good to see an understanding of, of a mental problem caused by the stress and everything of it. And that's not a critical, harsh attack by violence. That's just saying what happened. Now, when at last their work was done, they could think about getting some sleep. Some erected their bivouacs by the side of the tanks, but as they were still within artillery range and it was also soaking wet, many stayed in their tank, sleeping as best they could. Now, um, some of the tanks of the uh, second Fife and Four for Yemen were still actually stuck on the battlefield with their crews inside it. Um, basically, their, their tanks had been immobilised by the German fire. And, and you're, you're going to tell us what happened to Trooper Robert Nurse of 2nd Troop C Squadron. Now, he had an absolutely hellish night and he felt he, he was just trapped in a crippled hulk. And this is what he said. This lieutenant's tank was blazing. Another tank was blazing. Tibbet was even more frightened than I was. He was absolutely rigid with fear. He didn't say a word. We were sat there all night. We didn't have any sleep. We had to stay in the bloody tank because there were all sorts of things whizzing around. We were illuminated by at least two, if not three, blazing tanks in which several of my friends were killed. Tommy Morgan and Ed Crowley. Very shocked. I knew that at least two of my friends burnt to death. They didn't get out. Next morning, we wondered what the hell had happened. Why had we survived? We got out of the tank. Obviously, the German vehicles had withdrawn. There was a 75mm hole right through the metal casing on the back of the turret, about 18 to 24 inches from my head. Gone in one side and out the other, through all the greatcoats and things. I think the German gunner, seeing the flash when his, hell shit, his shell hit, presumed he'd knocked us out, and we survived. Simple as that. It would be a very long night. At this point, Pete, I think we'll take a break. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The show had been captured but it was evident that there would be a great deal more fighting before they could force a crossing of the Odon, particularly with the fire still pouring in from Rouray on their right flank. At 07.15 on the 27th of June, another miserable wet morning, the 10th Highland Light Infantry were ordered forward from the Shur and La Haute de Bosque, along with the 2nd Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders. Now, these two battalions get completely... Uh, tangled up in the narrow streets and lanes uh, and this is exacerbated by the presence of tanks uh, whether abandoned or still occupied uh, and, and, and then and then in a situation of chaos what don't you want to happen and what does happen well exactly what does happen to <laughs> the Germans counterattacked they always seem to do what you don't want them to do it's as if they were enemies now this is what Lieutenant Steel Brownlee has to say at dawn, we moved again to the east of the village, where the infantry had made progress during the night and some of the anti-tank ditches bridged. Churchill tanks were to take the woods southeast of Shur, then we would pass through and take the ground beyond. There was great confusion while the, their attack went in, and four panthers came into the village, scattering the infantry and getting to within 200 yards of us before being knocked out. I saw the commander of one of them blown out of his turret, 20 feet in the air, in the middle of a huge smoke ring. The panthers are a really dangerous German tank, uh, which, of course, many of our listeners will, will know more about than we do, to be honest. Now, before the 10th Highland Light Infantry could reach their start line prior to attacking towards Grainville, Sir Adon, they were hit hard by fire from German Panzer IVs of the recently arrived 8th Company, who were commanded by Obersturmfuhrer Hans Siegel of the 2nd 12th SS Panzer Regiment. Now, Siegel, he's an experienced uh, officer and he's taken up concealed positions along a, ta- a hedge uh, and his own tank was blocking w- with itself a sunken road. Uh, now, 
their turret machine guns, they just tear through the poor Scots uh, as they're struggling across the open field in, in front of them. And, and this is uh, Siegel's uh, subsequent reports give an idea of what's happening. Now, it's slightly unfortunate that they're written in the third person, but I think there's a lot of material of value in them. And so you're going to be Obersturmfuhrer Hans Siegel uh, of 8th Company, 12th SS Panzer Regiment. We let them come close and then hammer at short distance, concentrated fire from four machine guns at the mast attackers who are anxiously firing bullets into the terrain with no aiming. Experience has shown that our tactic works and the consequence here too is too that they run back in panic. Now, uh, at this point, the infantry, are, are, they, they, they get support from the Churchills of the 7th Royal Tank Regiment. They arrive. Uh, what happens to them, do you think? Well, they're knocked out one by one by the virtually invisible German panzers, and this is what Obersturm's Führer Hans Siegel goes on to say. We open fire from our panzer guns only on the tanks attacking with the second wave. Again, we achieve full success without losses of our own. The crews bail out in panic from burning and exploding tanks. The rest of them turn away, and with them, the infantry disappears behind the hills. So now the second Fife and Forfer Yeomanry take up the attack on Grainville Sewer Odin. Uh, now A Squadron's going to be in the lead with B and C Squadrons coming up behind them. One thing that's quite interesting is they've already learnt something uh, just from one day. Well, what, 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 what might that be, Gary? Well, when they were on exercises in the UK, the troop officer usually led the way. So they'd be in the first tank. But now they were actually in action. That job was more often done by the troop sergeant. Now, that was because it was evident that if the troop officer led and his tank was put out of action in a sudden ambush, it'd leave the troop temporarily leaderless just when they most required direction. Now, Lieutenant Steele Brownlee, 4 Troop, A Squadron, says this. The Churchill attack got nowhere and we took over. We were to advance up a slope, over the skyline, and then down into the woods beyond where the enemy positions were. We had two troops up, Freddie Craig on the right and myself behind him. As he topped the ridge, three of his tanks were brewed and his, and his took cover in a slight hollow. I had to take his place, so kept going. We advanced in the prescribed manner. Troop Sergeant leading and the Firefly in the rear. The latter had the only effective anti-tank gun in our troop, the 17-pounder, while the rest of us had the 75mm, which was great for firing HE shells, but not sufficient muzzle velocity for armour-piercing shot. Now it was in action, ready to take... Now it was in action, ready to take on hard targets when summoned. The trouble was that the corporal commanding the Firefly did not intend to be summoned and would not even keep up, but lagged behind, in spite of my orders over the air. Now, there's one thing we want to make clear here. What is that, Gary? Well, you've got to remember that criticism of individuals made in the uh, the press of battle, it's not always justified. So just because Steel Brown is furious with this Firefly commander doesn't mean that, that that's what's actually happened. It's, it's just the impression, and it's what Steel Browning was feeling at the time. Now, this is... Uh, I'm going to do another quote from inside the same tank as Steel Browning. This is his gunner, Trooper John Buchanan. It must, and he's talking about this, uh, this firefly. It must have been Corporal Crony. He had the 17 pounder. The trouble was getting them up. If you met a, a panther or a tiger tang, the only person that could go against it was a 17 pounder. We could never get, get it in the right area at the right time. Still Brownie used to swear a bit. Where's that fucking tank? <laughs> 
and 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 of course he blames crony but it, is it crony's fault not necessarily it it it, it but in it, when you're in the press of battle jesus you must be go you're desperate you need the support and your your instinct is to attack isn't it and then still Brownlee and his crew had a lucky escape, although their luck was another crew's misfortune. Yeah, this is terrible. Uh, Lieutenant Steel Brownlee says, Sergeant Greenfield topped the ridge safely and was going flat out down the slope when I saw a panther emerging from the woods on his left and firing at him. On top of the ridge, I was ranging on the panther and trying to get Sergeant Greenfield on the air to warn him when everything went wrong. A shell jammed in my breech and all my electrics went dead. There was no radio, intercom, engine and power traverse. Immobile on the skyline, all I could do was fire the machine gun manually at the Panther. Its gun traversed towards me. My three, my point three inch bullets bouncing off it when suddenly it turned and disappeared into the wood. It was an indescribable let off. Dick Greenfield was not so lucky. He had gone on alone and unsupported and was brewed up. Thompson and Sykes were killed. Harper died in hospital. He, Greenfield, and Ian Martin were buried and were burned, sorry, and never rejoined. The squadron passed on, and I had some clearing up to do. Um, now, these losses, they could well have been, and I'm not saying they are, but they could well have been the responsibility of Hans Siegel's 8th Company, uh, the, the, uh, his Mark IVs, because uh, uh, we'll come to that later. There's a, a confusion over German tank, tanks. By this time, B and C squadrons were coming up on the flanks of, of A squadron, and suddenly, uh, uh, Obersturmfuhrer Hans Siegel, he himself is hit, uh, and you're going to tell us what, what he thought. An anti-tank shell coming from the right suddenly rips open the floor of the chief's panzer. That's himself. It's in the third person, yeah. The lone tank had sneaked close, and while our turret is still moving to the three o'clock position, a shell hits the front, and, like a flash, the chief's panzer is engulfed in flames. Hatch covers fly open. The gunner bells out to the left. In flames, the loader dives out to the right. The chief wants to get out through the top turret hatch, but is caught by the throat microphone wire. He then tries to make it through the loader's hatch to the right, but bumps head violently with the radio operator, who could not open his own hatch. The barrel, having been turned half right, is blocking it. The chief has to move backward. He pushes the radio operator through the hatch, is engulfed in flames for some seconds, in danger of fainting. Still, he manages the jump to safety but he still has the steel, bottom of, uh, steel boom of the throat microphone at his neck. He cannot pull it over his steel helmet, so he is hanging at the panzer skirt, almost strangling himself, while machine gun salvos are slapping against the panzer. With a desperate jerk, he rips loose. The wire, almost finger thick, dangles in front of his chest. In the hollow, uh, in the hollow scene of the attack at night, the crew assembles, except for the driver. Sturm and Schweiss, Schlewels, sorry, who remained in the burning panzer. He was probably wounded or killed by the impact. His hatch was free. He would have made it out otherwise. The gunner lies on the ground, still in flames. The crew covers him with their own partly burned bodies, trying to smother the flames. He was not wearing leather gear, but only fatigues, since he was taking the place of the regular gunner only for the night. The gunner died of his burns later in hospital. 
Initially, the chief as well as the others do not notice their own burns on their faces and their hands. Now, uh, I'd emphasize again, Hans Siegel is the chief. He's, he's talking about himself here. And he, Siegel had bad burns on both his face and hands, uh, but he was still back in action. So he only has a brief hospitalization. Uh, there's brave men on both sides, both, both fighting for their countries. Uh, now, by this time, still Brownlee was also out of action with his Sherman immobile and helpless as all the circuits had failed. Ever proactive, he got out of the tank to see what he could do. And this is what Lieutenant Steel Brownlee of 4 Troop has to say. Jumping down on the grass, the first thing I saw was a complete leg in a boot and a gaiter and a bit of battle dress trouser with quite, good, quite, quite a good crease in it. Nearby was one of Freddie Craig's tanks, not fully burnt out, and Corporal Sangster crouching underneath it. He and I got his tank moving and arranged for it to tow mine back off the ridge. While the tow rope was being shackled, I crawled round looking for Sergeant Hebburn, whom I'd seen struggling out of his burning tank with both legs blown off. I found no trace of him. Corporal Sangster's tank towed mine back to the village with numerous halts as we picked up wounded infantrymen who were lying in the fields. Blimey. Now he soon gets his Sherman back working. It's basically the, the master switch has gone uh, and he gets it, he's soon back in action. Can I just draw your attention to something in that quote that, that's just really quite astonishing? Battle dress trousers with quite a good crease in it. So I actually notice the crease of the trousers. It's I mean, funny that's what just, comes to mind, isn't it? Yeah, it's just incredible. Now behind the second Fife and Fourth Fire Yeomanry, both Sher and La Ho the Bosque were vulnerable to attack from the Germans from around Rouray and Neuers. So from the flanks. Yeah, with various threatening incursions of infantry and tanks during that day. Now, the most serious of these, there's some 17 Panther uh, tanks. Uh, they're from the 3rd Panzer Division. They come driving in from Fontenoy in the west, aiming straight for the 5th Duke of Cornwall's uh, light infantry. Uh, that's part of the 43rd Wessex Division. They've been moved up to relieve the 46th Brigade. Uh, you, you've got to know, you know, you'll notice this is well behind the 2nd, 5th and 4th Army Yeomanry, and it's driving into the side of the salient. So they're at the end of a salient, but the Germans are counterattacking, trying to cut them off. Um, now, uh, uh, fortunately for the 5th DCLI, Duke Cornwall Light Infantry, the Panthers had no infantry support. Uh, and uh, what does that mean? What does it mean when tanks don't have infantry support? Well, it meant that the opposing infantry were able to deploy Piats and six-pounder anti-tank guns to considerable effect, knocking out several Panthers and forcing them to withdraw, although not before they'd created a substantial amount of mayhem. Now, once the surviving tanks from uh, the, the second Fife and Fourth Yeomanry A Squadron had made their way back and been replenished, they set back off once again back towards Grainville sur Odon. And uh, here, uh, Steel Brownie is watching Lieutenant Kenneth Matheson, uh, and and he's in charge of the recce troop, and they are edging forward to uh, towards Grainville sur Odon, which appears to be deserted. Was it was it deserted or was it empty? Um, and uh, can you imagine what they're thinking about? Because uh, at any moment they might open fire. Well, it was occupied all right. And uh, this is uh, what Lieutenant Steele Brownlee says. He lost a tank but no men to a panther sitting in or beside the church. As he was belting back towards us, the, the, have it, they, these are wrecky tanks, so they're just honeys. Uh, uh, having done his job, Colonel Scott came on the air and asked him for his exact position. He replied, position be buggered, wait out. 
Now, the Churchills appeared again, and with the infantry that went into uh, Granville, which we supported by fire, they met strong opposition and were repulsed. Dozens of wounded were dragged back to where we were sitting, and some lay in the shelter of my tank until jeeps took them back. I still see one infantryman, both legs blown off, lying with his head pillowed on a ground sheet and puffing at a cigarette. I doubt if he made it. At dusk, the infantry dug in and we withdrew to harbour. That's a lager, obviously. Finding our way uh, through woods and little fields bounded by deep ditches and high banks. That was the Bacage. That was the 27th of June. It's been a really terrible day for the uh, second Fife and Forfire Yeomanry. Hmm. Now, overall, when listening to the second Fife and Forfire Yeomanry veterans or reading the regimental history, it seems that every German tank they faced that day was a panther or tiger. Well, we now know that there were far more Mark IVs, like Siegel, 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 anyway, the German tank we were doing earlier. There are far more Mark IVs about than anything else. Uh, but do you fault people for poor, poor armour? A armoured personnel vehicle rec- sort of identification skills? No, because they're, they're just getting the merest glimpses of German tanks in battle conditions. And, and as, as was mentioned, dire visibility with billowing smoke and masses of hedges or woods creating an environment which is ideal for concealment. But the thing is that whatever it, they're facing, there's no doubt that the panther, it's panthers at this stage, uh, I notice being mentioned most. Uh, well, it's made a really big impression on the men. Uh, and uh, However, so panthers, good. What else have they noticed? Well, they've noticed uh, in the two days on the battlefield, it, they, they've uh, become aware of the endemic weakness of the Sherman. So you're going to say what Captain Douglas Hutchison, Pinky Hutchison, uh, of Headquarter Troop A Squadron says. It was rather horrifying to see how readily, sometimes almost instantaneously, the Sherman, when it was struck and knocked out, would explode. You would see a tank struck, a whoosh, out of the turret. There wasn't a hope in hell of any of the crew getting out in those circumstances. One of the reasons was we were carrying too much ammunition, overloading with ammunition, and the ammunition bins were not armour-protected, and therefore... Uh, very vulnerable to any penetration of the turret. The, the Shermans are just, they're just very exposed as tanks. Uh, there's not really much they can do about it. The, if the adding extra armour to the size didn't seem to help. Remember that tank yep. that was uh, near the village where they'd started off from? Uh, the, 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 the German shells just could, could penetrate the Sherman. They're just going to have to put up with it because the Sherman is a useful tank. And they don't have anything else, do they? Uh, now, well, is there any good news at all? Well, yeah. Uh, on the uh, on their right flank, the 49th West Riding Division had at last managed to wrest control of the dominant heights around Ruray, although Le Manoir alongside it was still held by the Germans. Yeah, and when we say dominant heights, don't think of a mountain or anything. This is, no, no. This is low, a low height. But yeah, it is still, it gave great, and it's a thorn in the side. Literally. Any high ground is high ground. That's it. Uh, but there's something really dramatic happens on the left uh, flank where the second uh, Argyle and Southern Highlanders, they, they make, they do something quite dramatic. What is it? Uh, and they deserve great credit for it, I think. Well, they advance along the road from Shur and uh, they clear successively the villages of Colerville, Mondrainville and Tourville. And then they push on even further and by 1715, quarter past five in the afternoon, they succeeded in capturing the 13-foot-wide bridge 
over the Odon on the road that led into the village of Tourmaville. Wow. And, uh, I mean, that's actually across the Odon then. And this is, this is still on the, so on the 26th of June, the 27th of June. So there is some good news and this is the best of it. Uh, they establish a 200 yard diameter bridgehead just the other side of the bridge and, and they dig in, uh, Piet teams and, and prepare to defend the bridgehead. Um, is it as uh, well? It's quite precarious. It's uh, a narrow Scottish corridor based on just one country lane passing through the Sher salient. Now the question was, could they be reinforced before the Germans swept them away in a counterattack? Well, yes, they can. And the first to arrive is another group that become heroes through the the battle that follows. But it's a, a company of the motorised Eighth Rifle Brigade, and they're followed up by the tanks of the Twenty Third Hussars. Um, how do you feel about the, what they've done? Well, the Scottish infantry had done well. Uh, it was largely achieved by their own efforts with little effective cooperation with supporting armour. Yeah, the, the armour comes later. They've done it on their own, haven't they? Yeah, that's not to say the tanks weren't busy. They were just fighting separate battles. And this is the point we're saying. They're not coordinated properly, are they? The infantry and the tanks and things, the guns, nothing. Uh, so what? So what, what's going to happen? They've got a small bridgehead towards the end of the 27th of June. What's, go, what, 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 what's high command? Do they know about it? Yeah, General Pip Roberts was determined to seize the opportunity the bridge represented, and he ordered forward the motorised infantry of his 159th Brigade. That's un- uh, so that's the motorised brigade within the, the 11th Armoured Division. Now, they drove down the road to Colville and then shook out to advance from the villas bocage Khan Highway to the Odon with a theoretical zero hour of 21.30. Wow. So, uh, urgency, this is all done off the, off the, uh, you know, off, the, off, the, quickly. Off the cuff. Yes, that's the expression I was looking for. Now, urgency was paramount, and although there uh, were the inevitable delays, they managed to take up defensive positions around Baron sur Odon and Tourmaville, thereby expanding the Argyle's original bridgehead. So the bridgehead's getting bigger. Uh, so what, what, what's the plans, uh, and how does this involve our heroes in the second 554 fight? Well, next day, it's planned that the whole 11th Armoured Division would drive across the Odon and drive on across the high ground dominated by Hill 112 towards the Orne River. That's going to be their next challenge for the second Fife and Four Fire Yeomanry. And that's what we'll be covering in the next podcast uh, about the, the battles on Hill 112. Well, it's been, it's, uh, th- this is the first battle that the, uh, the uh, second Fife and Four Fire Yeomanry fight. Uh, and it, it's been a big, it's been a, it must have been an eye opener for the lads. Yeah. And, and it's, it's very detailed and very descriptive. And I can't wait for the next one. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only two pounds per month and get ad free listening and bonus content you can find links for both on our facebook and twitter accounts sounds great doesn't it